0: This morning, if you would turn in your Bible to the sixth chapter of John's gospel, uh, this morning we're going to consider verses 22 through 59, which is a lot of text, but I hope to be pointed, clear, concise, compelling, and uh, so it won't seem as much. So join me uh, first as we ask for God's grace and understanding, um, asking for God's grace and you know, obedience to his word, and we'll do that in prayer, and then we will read the text. We'll make observations and applications as we go. So let's pray together. And Father God, we do ask this morning for your grace to open up the scriptures to us. We are dependent upon your grace and the Holy Spirit to reveal all that we should glean from this passage this morning. We desire to see Jesus more clearly this morning. We desire to obey the word in the power of the Holy Spirit this morning. And we ask all of this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. So I'm going to begin reading John chapter 6 in verse 22. On the next day, the crowd that remained on the other side of the sea So they said to him, Then what sign do you do that we may see and believe you? What work do you perform? Our fathers ate the manna in the wilderness that is written. He gave them bread from heaven to eat. Jesus then said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, It was not Moses who gave you the bread from heaven, but my Father who gives you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the, to the world. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me, but raise it up on the last day. For this is the will of my father, that everyone who looks on the son and believes in him should have eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. So the Jews grumbled about him because he said, I am the bread of, I am the bread that came down from heaven. They said, is not this Jesus, the son of Joseph, whose father and mother we know? How does he now say, I have come down from heaven? Jesus said these things in the synagogue as he taught in Capernaum. This is the word of the Lord. So to paraphrase a a quote from uh, a preacher I admire, Stephen Lawson, he said, The word of God is not difficult to understand, but it is often hard to hear and it's even harder to swallow. In our text this morning, we're going to see two groups that have the same problem. When presented with the substance of the truth versus the symbols, the signs, and the foreshadow of the truth, they choose form over substance, the illusion over the reality, adherence over submission. See, the reality of the truth for them is it's just too hard for them to swallow. The Apostle John in this section records that Jesus is the substance. Jesus is the reality of the whole religious system of Judaism. Jesus is the anti-type of what the typology of the law and the prophets and even their hero, Moses, points to. Jesus is the substance of the shadow presented in Moses' life and ministry. For the crowd, see, the substance is hard to swallow. Because why? For the crowd, it does not satisfy their appetite for the miraculous. For the Jewish leadership, the substance is is hard to swallow because they are, at the same time, choking on their own pride. It's hard to swallow the truth when you're choking on your pride. right? So they they both have the same problem, and they deny the truth. And so let us now dive into this text more closely. We'll look at verses 22 through 24. On the next day, the crowd that remained on the other side of the sea saw that there had only been one boat there and that Jesus had not entered the boat with the disciples, but that his disciples had gone away alone. Other boats from Tiberias came near the place where they had eaten the bread after the Lord had given thanks. So when the crowd saw that Jesus was not there, nor his disciples, they themselves got into boats and went to Capernaum seeking Jesus. See, the crowd knows that there is but one boat and those that Jesus did not get into the boat as the disciples had had left without them. Other boats had come from Tiberias, and they were no doubt seeking to see the miraculous things that Jesus had done in feeding so many, right? They wanted to see more of these miraculous things, so boats were coming to find him. And so the crowd then, they travel to Capernaum seeking Jesus. Verse 25, When they found him on the other side of the sea, They said to him, Rabbi, when did you come here? Jesus answered them, Truly, truly, I say to you that you are seeking me not because you saw signs, but because you ate your fill of the loaves. Do not work for food that perishes, but for the food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give you. For on him God the Father has set his seal. Then they said to him, What must we do to to be doing the works of God. And Jesus answered them, this is the work of God that you believe in him whom he has sent. You see, they're looking for signs. That's initially what they say. And Jesus points out, no, you're actually not even looking for a sign. You're looking to satisfy your own appetite. You're looking to satisfy your appetite. So when the crowd comes, they find Jesus. He's teaching in the synagogue in Capernaum. And though the crowd, they rightly and reverently call him rabbi or teacher. We will soon see that they will dispute everything he teaches, right? They call him rabbi as a, as a point of reference or reverence. And then soon they'll dispute everything he teaches. He who they once earlier. In, in the chapter, called him a prophet. They called him a man of God who was sent in the world in chapter 6, verse 14. They would soon then regard him as lesser than Moses. It is this same crowd that clamored to make him a king. Right? They wanted him to be king, but they understand extraordinary little about the king's reign. As we saw in chapter 2, verse 25, Jesus knows all people. In himself, he knows what is in the heart of the crowd. In our passage in verse 26, Jesus calls into question the seeker's motivation. They leave seeking him, but he calls quickly into account what is your real motivation You say that I'm a prophet because you saw the sign which I performed feeding the 5,000, and yet you do not receive me as I am because your true motivation is your appetite. This is reminiscent to me of Paul's letter to the Philippian church, and he intimates that appetite is a God, and those who serve it are enemies of the kingdom. In Philippians chapter 3, verses 18 and 19, he says, For many of whom I have often told you and now tell you, even with tears, walk as enemies of the cross of Christ. Their end is destruction, their God is their belly, and they glory in their shame with minds set on earthly things. This is really the pointed accusation that Jesus says here when he says, you came because you wanted to get your fill. You came looking for a satisfied appetite, right? And uh, they should be convicted to the heart that he's saying that your God is your belly. You didn't come here seeking understanding, seeking the kingdom of God, seeking the Messiah that was promised. You come because your belly Your appetite has become your God. To the crowd, Jesus pointedly teaches this, that you're not seekers of God. You're not seekers of his righteousness. You're not seekers of his kingdom. And he says, you're not even seekers of the signs of the Messiah, much less the son of man himself. You are a natural man with temporal affections, making you an enemy of God and not a seeker. You don't understand Remember what Paul wrote in Romans chapter three, verses 10 through 12. None is righteous. No, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good. Not even one. Although Jesus points to their depraved motivation, he offers the crowd hope in the gospel in himself, doesn't he? He immediately offers them hope. I would, he says, if you repent of your sinful desires for self-satisfaction and believe, the Son of Man will give you the gracious gift of eternal life. Recall Jesus teaching in the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew chapter six, thirty-one through thirty-three. He says, therefore, do not be anxious, saying, "What shall we eat?" or "What shall we drink?" or "What shall we wear?" For the Gentiles seek after all these things, and your heavenly Father knows that you need them all. But seek first the kingdom of God and His righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. Also, Romans 14, verse 17, For the kingdom of God is not a matter of eating and drinking, but of righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. So what is your motivation, church, for gathering on the Lord's Day? I would ask, are you motivated to worship the God who saved you? Are you seeking first the kingdom of God? Are you seeking growth in His righteousness? Or do you come to church to satisfy an appetite for a particular affinity? What I mean by that is that do you gather because you have mutual outside interests with the people who gather at a particular church? Well, you see, you could also gather because you have a mutual political ideology with those who attend. Does church satisfy a need uh, in a member to be a member of a club that has mutual interests? When affinities change, when you no longer gain what satisfies you, this is what happens in churches. You'll depart to another. And then you'll go to another. And when it becomes less than satisfactory, you'll go to another. And then when that becomes less satisfactory, you'll go to another. And then pretty soon you won't go at all. Because no matter where you go, there you are. There you are. No matter where you go, there you are. And your affinities, your passions, the things that you care about are not shared by equally by everybody who gathers. And so it's the church's fault. And so you leave. I'll go to another group where they like the things that I like. Until you find that amongst that group, there's 50% of them don't like the same things you do. They don't think the way you do, and therefore you'll move on again and again. Because we have made church a culture club, a little club of our own affinities, of our own passions, of our own desires, of our own things that we want, to fill an appetite right for what we have an affinity for. We want to keep feeding that appetite. But seek first Jesus Christ and his kingdom and his righteousness, and he will gift you. He's telling these guys, right? And I think the scripture tells us this. If we seek first the kingdom of God and we seek first his righteousness, he will gift us with the soul-satisfying food of peace in the Holy Spirit. He came that we might have life and that we might have that more abundantly. Didn't he? Let us look forward to verse 28 and 29. Then they said to him, What must we do to be doing the works of God? And Jesus answered them, This is the work of God that you believe in him whom he sent. This is the work of God to believe in him whom he sent. I would ask us this morning to to ask ourselves this question maybe often. How do you know? How do you know that God is at work in you? How do you know this morning that God is at work in you? How do you know that you are doing a work that is pleasing to God? It's simple. It's the simple answer, the one that Jesus gave. You believe in him whom he sent. That is the work of God in you, and it is the work of God worked out of you. See, it means that you have sought first the kingdom, and you have sought His righteousness, and it is in His kingdom and in His righteousness that you, in your soul, finds satisfaction. I'm satisfied with the kingdom of God and what God aims for. I'm satisfied in His righteousness and not my own. That's how you know that you know without the shadow of a doubt that God is working in you. That you believe in him and that you are minded and heartfelt moving for those things in the kingdom. That you are about living a kingdom life. That you are about in a, in a personal way growing in the righteousness that is deposited to you in Jesus Christ. These are the things that your soul will find satisfaction in if you indeed have sought first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. So they said to him, verse 30, Then what sign do you do that we may see and believe you? What work do you perform? Our fathers ate the manna in the wilderness as it is written. He gave them bread from heaven to eat. Then Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, It was not Moses who gave you the food from heaven, But my Father gives you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. And they said to him, Give us this bread always. See, the crowd says this, Jesus, perform an act. Do a work. Do a work that we will see and then we will believe. It's a pretty incredible thing for them to say to Jesus considering what just happened in the previous text, isn't it? It's a pretty incredible thing to say, what sign do you do? What work do you perform? You're telling us that we have to perform this work by believing in you. Well, Jesus, what are you going to do? What, what thing are you going to perform for us that we will believe? And remember, so Jesus had just supplied 5,000 men, and estimates have that above that, that with women and children there, 20,000 people Jesus fed with two fish and five loaves of bread enough so that it satisfied all of them what sort of sign would they be looking for this affirms that jesus was accurate when he said you don't really come for a sign this is this this confirms that 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 he's accurate when he says that your god is your belly your god is your appetite They will not believe no matter what sign he performs, no matter what work he does. And they would say to him, Moses fed our people with bread from heaven. What work do you do that we should believe? Jesus answered them, Well, basically this, Moses was the sign, but the substance is the one sent from heaven. Moses was a sign, and the manna that came from heaven was a sign of the bread that was to come. The living bread. Moses was the sign. I'm the substance. That's what he tells them. The one sent from heaven, he is the bread. This is the bread that gives life to the world. This is that further indictment on the crowd that the God is their belly, their appetites, their affinities. The sign of man in the wilderness was not about satisfying their earthly appetite, even though it did. That sign of manna was to point them to the coming bread of life, the Messiah. The people of Israel was to see that that bread sent from heaven was a sign that their faith should be pointed in trust, that nourishment from their soul comes from God that the nourishment from their soul comes from God and from God alone. You see, for them, they should have understood this, that Moses was the conduit. He was the giver of the sign. But Jesus is the substance, the giver of life. Notice the crowd's response is much like the response from the woman at the well in chapter 4, verse 15, remember? See, they say here in verse 34, Sir, give us this bread always. Remember the woman at the well when he said that that there would be a supply of living water forever in chapter uh, 4 verse 15. She says, Sir, give me this water that I will never have to come here again to draw water. See, the reasoning is the same. I will believe if you satisfy my earthly appetite. I will believe. I'm looking for something to satisfy my earthly appetites. The signs, the miracles, the supply of bread. This is what they long for. This is what she longed for. It is what uh, these uh, in the crowd long for. Show us signs and miracles, but really what we want is a supply of bread and water. We want our appetites satisfied, Jesus But when Jesus tells them that he himself is the substance that will satisfy them, that he is the substance that they need in the flesh, they only desire the sign and not the substance. Do you know that one of the reasons that we aim here at this church, at least I know that the elders would support me in saying this, and this this is my heart and my aim, not that I'm making this passage about me, you'll see, but that one of the reasons that we aim to keep the Word of God central in our ministry is as a desire to keep ourselves focused on the substance of our faith, right? Rather than the signs and affinities, The substance of our faith is found in the scriptures who point us to the person and work of Jesus Christ, his death and resurrection. The substance of our faith is on the pages of the scriptures. That's the reason why we want the word of God to be central to our time here together as we gather and central to our lives as we live that out throughout the week as well. Now we could draw a a crowd of people on Sunday mornings. We could draw a big crowd. We could fill this place up. We could have to have two services and have this place just filled up. I believe we could do that if we abandoned the centrality of the scriptures. If we abandon an emphasis on the sovereign work of God in Christ Jesus and appeal to those things which satisfy the appetite of the world. The things that satisfy the appetite of the world are entertainment, the things that satisfy the appetite of the world are a sense of individuality, that I am on this, this global ball all by myself and what I want is what I want and what I get is what I ought to get because it is all about me. If we did that and we made it all about those who might come, who would supposedly be seekers, not seeking Jesus, seeking the appetite of their own affections. If we appealed to that, certainly we could draw a crowd, couldn't we? If we appealed to the to the idea that, that we are all autonomous and that we have no accountability and we live nothing accountable to the word of God, not accountable to each other, we could draw a crowd of people together each week because we give them what satisfies the God of their belly, right? We would be satisfying human appetite and the appetite for this, self-righteousness, isn't it? There is an appetite within us for self-righteousness. Of the many people that I have seen come and go over the past five years, I would say that a good 80%, some have left for valid reasons, you know, you move, you—you've a job takes you somewhere. But I'm saying that a good 80% of the people who have come to me have left because the substance of Christ found in the preaching of the scriptures expositionally week in and week out did not satisfy their appetites for a particular affinity. So I've had to come and tell me that the reason they're going is that I didn't meet this affinity, this thing that they wanted, this thing that did not satisfy their appetite, that the preaching of the word of God week in and week out was not enough. It's not what we wanted. Thank you for the truth, they might say, but we need that and this. Thank you for presenting Jesus Christ to us as the centrality of what we do, but we want Jesus plus. We want Jesus and this. We want Jesus and this group or this thing. But I will tell you this from my own heart. And many of you who know me know this. i got nothing to offer. I've got nothing. Zero. What I offer you is Jesus. What I offer you is what the Word of God says concerning His Son, Jesus. And you know why that's all I have to offer? Because it is the only thing that will give you and me life. And that's all I have to offer. And if that isn't enough, if that isn't enough, Maybe the problem does not lie in me. Maybe the problem does not lie in the scriptures. Maybe the problem does not lie in Jesus. Maybe if Jesus isn't enough, maybe if the word of God isn't enough, maybe, just maybe, the problem might be you. The problem might be them. And I don't mean that in a cross way, but maybe that's, maybe that's the problem. Let us look at verse 35. Is it warm in here? (laughs) I'm warm now, I'll tell you. Verse 35. Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. But I said to to you that you have seen me, and yet you do not believe. For sure. Jesus is speaking to the crowd here in the synagogue in Capernaum, and he's also, there's also Jewish leaders there in attendance. So this is kind of what's going on here, right? And in this section, he's kind of speaking to the whole gathering as they are there. Jesus declares with clarity and without any ambiguity, I am. With clarity with no ambiguity whatsoever, I am. I am the bread of life. I am the substance that all the signs point to. I am the pre-existing one to whom your law, your prophets, and even your beloved Moses points to. See, this section clearly and without ambiguity also declares the gospel of God, doesn't it? It declares... That God, who is the creator, is the giver of life, and he is holy. It declares that outside of sovereign grace, that no one, no one will come to faith. It declares the human problem in verse 36. You have seen me and yet you don't believe. Well, how does that communicate the human problem? It does. It really does, because it is akin to Romans chapter 1, verses 20 and 21, isn't it? You have seen me, and you do not believe. And Paul pointedly says in Romans 1, 20 through 21, for his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made. So they are without excuse. Although they knew God, they did not honor Him as God or give thanks to Him, but they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. This passage further declares that God draws those who will believe according to His own will. And it declares something we ought to get clear about sovereign grace, because it's all of grace, brothers and sisters. It is grace from the outset, It is grace that saves us. It is grace that justifies us. It is grace that sanctifies us. It is grace that will glorify us. It is all the work of God. See, this passage declares that God draws those who will believe according to His own will. He will draw them, and those that He draws, He will justify those that He justifies. He will sanctify those that He sanctifies. He preserves to the end. Because Jesus here says, I came that I will not lose one of them. I would not lose one of them. He preserves everyone who is his all the way to the end. And he holds them. And he will one day glorify those who come to him in the last day. As he says, I will raise them up. I will raise them up. He will glorify them in the last day. You see, Jesus here declares something, doesn't he? I think. I think he declares an intolerant gospel. I think that the gospel that, that says, I will tolerate no other way of salvation than in myself. That's what Jesus says. I will tolerate no other, no other gospel that finds its, its way in any other thing is not the gospel of God at all. That The only gospel is the gospel of God that finds its completion in me. It is intolerant of any other way. There is no other way. There is no gospel provision whereby you can come according to your own affinities, according to your own appetites, or according to your own version of the truth. It is God who satisfied his requirement for the remission of sins in the person of Jesus Christ sent from heaven. That is the only way. Jesus is an intolerant teacher. He's telling the truth here. I am the way you come. I am the one whom the Father will draw you to. I am the one who will preserve you all the way to the end. I am the one that will raise you up on the last day. This is what Jesus says. This alone is the gospel of grace. I would ask you this morning, how might you get the bread and the water that satisfies for eternity? It's two little words, and Jesus says them. I am. How might you get what satisfies you? How might you get what brings you all the way to heaven? Jesus says, I am. Now, you must see that this narrow, intolerant truth is very hard to hear. It is at first very hard to hear. Let us look at verses 41 through 51. So the Jews grumbled about him because he said, I am the bread that came down from heaven. They said, Is not this Jesus, the son of Joseph, whose father and mother we know? How does he now say I have come down from heaven? Jesus answered them, Do not grumble among yourselves. No one comes to me unless the Father who sent me draws him, and I will raise him up on the last day. It is written in the prophets, and they will be taught by God. Everyone who has heard and learned from the Father comes to me, not that anyone has seen the Father except he who is from God. He has seen the Father. Truly, truly, I say to you, This Basically, we don't want to hear this from you. Who do you think you are? We know your family. We know where you come from. We don't want to hear that you came down from heaven. You're not one of us. You didn't come from us. So therefore, you can't be who you say you are. I know your mother and father. I know where you came from. You did not come out of us, out of this religious system. Right? We don't want to hear from you. Jesus responds very pointedly. He says, and I'm paraphrasing this in my own words. Jesus responds, if you had been taught of God, if you had been taught from God himself, he would have drawn you and you would believe that he sent me. If you understood the scriptures that you teach, you would have listened to his words and you you would have come to me. Those who were fed the manna in the wilderness, they all died. You see, it was a sign. It did not save them. It cannot save you, he would say. This is the bread that comes down from heaven so that one may eat of it and not die. I am the living bread that came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. And the bread that I will give for the life of the world is my flesh. Not only is the truth of Jesus Christ hard to hear, but it's also difficult to swallow. Verse 52, The Jews then disputed among themselves, saying, How can this man give us his flesh to eat? The truth is hard to hear and hard to swallow for the Jewish leaders because they first must choke on their pride. Looking at verse 53 through 59, This is the bread that came down from heaven, not like the bread the fathers ate and died. Whoever feeds on this bread will live forever. See, although John chapter 6 is not a passage in the apostles' aim about the Lord's Supper, the Lord's Supper is certainly described here in John six fifty three 53 through 59. Jesus would say this, Unless you come to the cross of Jesus Christ and feast upon Him, unless you die to your own appetite, the appetite of your own flesh, unless you are nourished by the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ, you remain dead in your trespasses and sins, and there is no life in you, and there is no other way to find eternal life. There is no way of forgiveness unless you apprehend the flesh of Christ himself and for yourself. See, when you come to the Lord's table each week, we remember this, don't we? We remember this, it's not about us. When we come to the Lord's table, we say it's not about us. It's all about Jesus, which reminded me this week, of the song, Oh, the wonderful cross. Oh, the wonderful cross bids me come and die that I may truly live. One of the early church fathers, Ignatius, commenting on this section writes this, stand fast, brethren, in the faith of Jesus Christ and in his love and in his passion and in his resurrection. Do ye all come together in common and individually breaking one and the same bread, which is the medicine of immortality, and the antidote, which prevents us from dying. But it is a cleansing remedy, driving away evil, which, which causes that we should live in God through Christ Jesus. I think that's a very uh, apt way of describing what happens when we come to the table, isn't it? We're feasting upon Jesus, his death for us, his body broken for us, and his life. It is a cleansing remedy. It is that which we appropriate in driving evil away from our life, which causes us that we should live in Christ Jesus for God. See, this is the pride-crushing truth of the gospel, is this. To To live, you must die and you must feed upon Jesus' death, and you must drink of his life in order to satisfy God's righteous requirement and that there is no other way. Jesus later in John's gospel will say, your flesh is of no help at all. Our flesh is no help at all. But Jesus is pointing here, you must eat of my flesh. You must drink of my blood. See, I think when you combine the thought that Jesus says, your flesh is no help at all. Wouldn't you then appropriate this passage and go, I must feed on the body and the life of Jesus in order that I might live. My flesh will not help me. It will fail me. But the flesh of Jesus Christ has been proved because after three days, where was he? He was not in the grave anymore. That he took all of that sin upon himself and after three days, the Father raised him up. And if our life is hidden in him, Jesus promises in this passage Many, many times, over and over again, he says, and I will raise him up on the last day. The Father will draw those to me that are mine, and I will keep them forever. They are mine, as we sang in that song. They are his. He will keep them. And on the last day, he will raise them. Right? It is all the work of Jesus Christ. And your flesh is no help at all. You see... That is a hard to hear gospel for the world out there, isn't it? Your flesh will not help you. You are a mess. Right? Hopefully, we're honest enough to say, I am too. I am a mess. But because I'm a mess, God sent the bread from heaven, Jesus Christ. And He died a death that I deserved. And He's promised that if I would feed on Him, if I would rid myself of my human appetite, and that I would hunger and I would thirst for righteousness that is found in Him, that He would give me life. And that on the last day He will raise me up and He will never lose me. He cannot let go of me. So I would ask you this question, can you lose your salvation, brothers and sisters? The answer is no, absolutely not. How could you lose something that doesn't belong to you? How could you lose something that does not belong to you? How could you lose something that you didn't earn? How could you lose something when Jesus promises that it is He who keeps it? He is the author and the finisher of our faith according to Hebrews, isn't He? How could you lose your salvation? The only way you could lose it is if you never had it. The only way you could lose your salvation is if it was something you never had. It is God who holds us. Will you reject the God of your appetite this morning and simply feed upon the death of Jesus Christ for your sin? See, I think of this passage and I keep thinking, we must always keep going back to the cross. We must keep going back to the cross of Christ, knowing that it is in his flesh that my sin is forgiven, that this once and for all sacrifice, I keep feeding on his death. Because if I keep feeding on the death of Jesus, I will find that it has nourishment sent from heaven, life-giving nourishment, and his blood is life-giving blood that leads me to walk in the things that God has called me to. Impossibly done. Do you know that any of our obedience, I I thought about this all week, anything that I've done in obedience to God, and I've tried to claim it for myself, I do that often, right? Well, I've been faithful to this, and I've been faithful to that, and you should look at me, I'm pretty awesome. No. Any faithfulness that we might display is the faithfulness of God to send His Son to die for us and to raise Him up on the third day and wash us with His blood. And we walk now in the power of God and not the power of ourselves. As Jesus said, the flesh is no help at all. No help at all. Makes us dependent upon God, isn't it? it? Makes us dependent upon Jesus Christ and His death. And I ask us this this morning as we close. Will you go to the cross every day? and lay down your life with Christ? And will you drink in the life-giving blood of Jesus that is found in his resurrection? This is the intolerant gospel. I hope this morning that God has given you an appetite for his word and for his Christ. I hope that this morning, if you didn't and you, you, had a, you have your own personal appetite, I hope this morning that God suppresses your appetite for that and gives you an appetite, a hunger, and a thirst for his kingdom and his righteousness that is only found in the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ for you. Let us take a moment of silence just to reflect upon God's word. Uh, Ask our hearts how he is calling us to respond to his word. And the refrain in our song this morning, thank you, Jesus. Jesus, thank you.